And then after that, our brother Ezekiel will give us a sermon from Ezra 3. Thanks. Um, so the Bible reading for today is Ezra chapter 3, verse 1 to 40. Sorry, Ezra chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 5. So that's 3, verse 1 to 4, verse 5. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheotel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month, on the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Sheotel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Hanadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their place to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one can distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. 
When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God, and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrated their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of God. morning church <clears throat> what's something that you've built that you're proud of now let me just sort this yep not me so for those who know me i'm just like ping i'm not handy at all i measure twice and i cut once which you're laughing that sounds right that's the right thing to do but not for me because i cut too short and i have to go back to bunnings and buy more so if I do construct something from scratch, it is a big deal for me. And well, one of the things I made in the last few years was a computer monitor stand made out of cardboard. So not much to imagine here, but I had a monitor that couldn't height adjust, and I was sick of using books. So I found a few bits of cardboard, measured it out, made a rectangle that fit the monitor legs. Dull, just like your reaction, I know. And so it was this monitor stand. It was absolutely the ugliest thing you could put your eyes on, but by gosh, was it well reinforced inside. I dropped 10 kilogram dumbbells on it and it didn't even dent. I was very proud of this stand. I had a picture of it before, but hopefully it's not gonna show. I hope whatever you've built in your life is more impressive than my dull monitor stand. Perhaps it's something physical, like a contraption, or I know Steve built a deck, awesome. Perhaps you've built a career that you're proud of, or a family that makes you smile, or even it's a network of people that you can rely on. All good things. But how about your relationship with God? Is that something you can say you've built? Or does it sort of just, I don't know, float in the background somewhere? Today we come to chapters 3 to 6 in the book of Ezra, it's a big passage, and we get to see the Jews start rebuilding their lives by starting with the temple. Last week, Pastor Matt took us through chapters 1 and 2, where we saw that the Jews, the Israelites, had been in exile for 70 years, and now that exile was finally over, they were homesick and now allowed to go back to their homeland. And we looked at what it was like, how the Jews pulled together and decided that their first step would be to rededicate their lives to God. So that's where we're picking up the story here in chapter 3. And we're going to cover a lot of ground. It's four chapters. I won't lie. But bear with me. And if you do have any questions, feel free to come and find me after. Now, first point, a relationship worth building. So when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel, 
to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So here we see that the Israelites, after traveling many, many miles from Babylon, where they were exiled, they've put their things down, settled back into their towns, and now come together as one, united in Jerusalem to start the next phase. And we see Joshua, he's the head priest, and Zerubbabel, he's from the line of kings, the line of David. These are the big wigs, they're leading the charge, and that's a big deal. Now just imagine you've been away from the land, from your home for 70 years. In fact, some of the people were born in Babylon, they hadn't even seen Jerusalem, but they've heard about it their whole lives. And together as a big crowd, they're walking up the hill towards the city, because the city was on top of a hill. But there's this nervous anticipation. What's this fabled city going to look like? You're there to rebuild, but how much damage really is there? And when you come up over the ridge, what do you see? Not the legendary city of old. Buildings desolated. Monuments torn down, nature growing back in. And most of all, people had moved in all around. It's all very messy. And what's the feeling? Where do you start? Do you clear the rubble, find somewhere to put, I don't know, maybe the wall or maybe the foundations? I don't know. Well, for the Israelites, they chose to build the altar. That was the first step. And the altar is a sacred table for offerings and making sacrifices. And they chose to do this because like in chapters 1 and 2, they want to set their priorities straight to rededicate themselves to God, to reestablish this new chapter the right way as God's people. So back to verse 3. Despite the fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord both the morning and evening. Then they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with a required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. And I'll summarize the next bit here. So after those offerings, they had the regular burnt offerings, then the new moon offerings, then the other sacred festival offerings, and then the free will offerings. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer those burnt offerings to God, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. A lot of offerings. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they could bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. Skip down to verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets... And the Levites took their places to praise the Lord, as, descri- as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. First steps, this is serious stuff. The very start of their rebuild, the time to set the tone, and the first step they've chosen is to dedicate their first days to offering sacrifices to God, despite the fear of all the people around them. I mean, burning offerings day and night. Can you imagine all the smoke? Can you imagine the smell? Day and night. And given the amount of offerings they're making, this is a real statement to all the foreigners around who had moved in. We're back. And there's nothing more important to them than restarting their nation, building them with God, their creator, at the center despite the fear surrounding them. Oh, what a joyous occasion this would have been. But did you notice this little bit at the end there, verse 12? But many of the older priests 
And Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. What's that all about? Bit of funny juxtaposition there, isn't it? You've got this whooping and jumping joy and then weeping. And I don't want to spend too long on this here, but I think we're going to see a lot of this in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a story that's full of highs and lows. And the author could have just left this out, but I think he included it to be truthful to the moment. And that rebuilding the foundation, the temple, was a mixed feeling. For those older people, they'd seen the past temple, they'd seen the glory of their nation, and now it was no more. The good times were gone, and what they were seeing now was only a shadow of what was there before. And I think perhaps it was difficult for them to forget about those good times and move forward with this new phase. So I wonder at this point, where are we all at with God in our lives? Do we think our relationship with Him is any important and is certainly something to risk our lives for? I'll be honest, I sometimes myself forget that God is very real and on the other end of a relationship. And I think that He's some ethereal being floating about in the cosmos, doing His own thing. And if I really need Him, then I'll go back and say, oh God, can you please do me a favor for this thing? No, God's very real. He's a very real God. And if we want to live our lives right, we need to center our lives on Him because He's the one who created all things. He knows how things are supposed to work. And without Him, we're just running around aimlessly, honestly. Surely, that's a relationship worth building and exploring. And that'd be a nice way to end the story right here. The people have been exiled. They've come back and rededicated themselves to God. But we know that's not all. Let's read on, chapter 4. Difficulties will come, our next point. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because, like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the days, uh, the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Now, we're lucky here as readers that the author immediately mentions that the people around them are enemies. Otherwise, we might read this and think, oh, yeah, they, they want to join in, help rebuild, they worship the same God, that's not so bad. But no, the people here aren't friends. They were people that were brought in by the Assyrians to occupy the land whilst the Israelites were gone. And perhaps they did worship the same God. But they also worshipped a lot of other gods and they had other practices. And, they wanted to, and what they really wanted to do was to preserve their religious practices by having this temple built so there was also somewhere they could go and worship and do their own thing. So Rabbabel knew this and he rejected them as he wanted to keep Israel's worship pure, untainted, do things the right way. So he stopped them from joining. And even at this point, you might think, well, mate, come on, that's being a bit unreasonable. But the next verses are very telling. <clears throat> then the peoples around them set to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of King Cyrus, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
So they fail to join in. Well, their next tactic is to discourage and make them afraid to go on building. Here we see a very active opposition against the mission of building the temple. And can you imagine what it must have been like for the Israelites? What things the people would have been shouting at them, mocking them and saying? Ah, you'll never finish. The Babylonians got you once. They'll get you again. A real God wouldn't have let your city be ruined. Fear tactics, intimidation. Expect a shipment of logs one day. Doesn't show up. Harassing them while they're walking down the street or at night when in their houses. Man, you could have imagined how scary it must have been for the Israelites. They even bribed officials to work against them. This is real opposition. And what's the effect? It works. We see in verse 24, Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Wow, what a whammy. After all that hype, rededicating themselves to God, burning offerings, keeping themselves pure, apart from the people of the land, the people were discouraged and afraid to go on building. Now, I skip verses 7 to 23 here as the, act, as the author actually gives a bit more detail about the sort of opposition they get. So in those verses, there was a letter to the king which said some untruthful things, and the king basically said, you ought to stop building. So if you're interested, you can have a read later, but let's pause here for a second. Now, discouragement's a hard thing, isn't it? There's no doubt about it. And I also wonder, where do we get this notion that obeying God should be easy? Hey God, I've been doing ministry for a while, for so many years, but numbers are dwindling and hardly anyone showing up. I've been praying and praying for opportunities to bring this person to church, but you know, the world just keeps taking them further and further away. You've called me to give me, to make me no, you've called me to give up on chasing wealth, fame, and fortune. And what do I get instead? Struggles. Bad health. No riches, no friends. What do you want me to do, God? I've prayed about it. But since then, I've had nothing but problems. Nothing but setbacks. <clears throat> and God, I'm beginning to think, this maybe isn't what you want me to do. Is this path you've taken me on? Is this really it? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. No doubt about it. That's what it says in the Bible. And you're not even doing anything different. You're just living your life as a Christian. That itself will bring persecution. And then you start doing things. Well, people are going to want to snuff that out. And once that happens, what's next? Well, we could be like the Jews at the time and say, I didn't sign up for this. I quit. What do you think it was like for Paul, the great missionary? God might have said to Paul, hey, Paul, come start some churches for me. People are going to hate you. You're going to get shipwrecked. Snakes are going to bite you. People are going to stone you. It's difficult. We should expect it. And look, I understand that we're human. We have emotions and we have hard times. And when we're discouraged, we want comfort. That's the right thing to feel. But there's also a time for tenderness and a time for toughness. And we can't let comforts turn into ways to avoid our fears rather than face and overcome them. Discouragements are going to happen. We know, we've got to know that and expect it. But it's not the end of the story here for the Jews 
and it certainly isn't the end of the story for us either. Come with me to chapter 5 and we come to our next point. God will be with us. <coughs> now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, uh, just, oh, sorry, Haggai the prophet, yes, and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in, Jer- in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedach, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shetha Bozani and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, What are the names of those constructing this building? But the eye of God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. <clears throat> now, as readers, we get the benefit of reading and thinking things happen immediately in the Bible. But it's actually been 16 years since, 16 years since they've been stopped. And you can imagine everyone would have gone back to their own lives, doing their own things. So God stirs up Haggai the prophet and says, the next thing, I'm going to take a drink of water. So I summarize from Haggai chapter 1. You people say the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord, but whilst you dwell in your nice paneled houses, my house lies in ruins. Have you wondered why you sow so much and harvest so little? Why you eat but you never have enough? Why you drink but you're never filled? Have you wondered why things have been so difficult for you? Why you earn money, but it seems to keep filling up a bag with holes. So yes, the Jews have been discouraged and stopped. But after 16 years, I think there's also a sense that they don't want to start again. Eventually they do, we know that. But at this point, we get the governor of the land come in and ask, hey, what are you doing? And this time, I'd say this opposition's a bit more neutral. And you know, it's been 16 years, he's probably new to town, and doesn't even know the project, but he just wants to make sure that these Jews have building approval. So I'll spare you the details about the letter to the king, but he asks the king, and the king confirms it's all in order. And in all this time, he doesn't actually stop them from building. He just says, let me know, let me know who's doing what, and then we'll keep going until we get the okay. So as we read, chapter 6, verse 6, and this is the king speaking. Now then, Tatanai, governor of the trans-Euphrates and Shethabozani and all your other officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, olive oil, as requested by the priests, must be given them daily without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime... Their house is to be made a pile of rubble. <coughs> Causes his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree. 
wants to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. What a turn. Not only does the king allow the building to go on, but he funds it from the royal treasury and decrees that anyone who opposes them will be destroyed and the house turned into a pile of rubble. In some other versions, it says dunghill. So the people go off, they finish the temple, and the Lord made them joyful, for he had turned the heart of the king of Israel, or of Assyria, to them, so that he added them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. All's well ends well. Great hero's journey, isn't it? But where does this leave us? What's the point of the story? <clears throat> where was God through those 16 years? And why doesn't he make it easy for us to follow him? Well, to be honest, I'm not sure why they worked out the way they did and why God didn't make it easy. But I do know when I read this story, I'm reminded that people who follow God in all times, today and thousands of years ago, they all live out the very same tensions that Jesus talks about when following God. In John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. In Ezra, we see those offering to help the return exiles are, in fact, adversaries and not worshippers of the same God that they claim. The Persian Empire for decades seems aligned against God's people, and when they try to rebuild, their neighbours do everything to block their efforts. But through all of this, we can see God remains in control. He doesn't disappear. He stayed with the Israelites, worked through the people, the governors, the kings. God stayed with his people and reminded them of the promises that he made. And no doubt there will be waiting. We see it all throughout the Bible. And in fact, as readers, we often forget that long periods of time happen between the sentences we read. Abraham waited 25 years after God promised him a son. Joseph sat in prison 13 years for a crime he didn't commit. Even here in Ezra, 16 years have passed before any action was taken to rebuild again. So what makes you think God won't keep his promises to you, even with a little bit of waiting? So when we're feeling discouraged and disappointed, don't let your heart be ruled by what you see. Let it be ruled by the promises God has made to us. The promise that he loves us. The promise that he would send his son to die for us on the cross. The promise that whilst Jesus was resurrected and gone back to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to live with us, to encourage us. The promise that he will ultimately bring about salvation for the world and that sin will be no more and every tear wiped away. And whilst in those times he spoke through the prophets, today he speaks through his word, the Bible. So as we read Ezra and the Bible, we can be reminded that people thousands of years ago weren't so different from us. And if they could endure all those hardships while sticking faithfully to God's promises, why can't we? Especially since we're on the other side and we get to see the product of God's plan to save the world in his son, Jesus. So as we finish, I'm reminded of a great verse in John 16, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart for I have overcome the world. So I encourage you today, continue building a relationship for, uh, with God. It's surely worth it. And as the Israelites look back to rebuilding the temple as their center of worship, so too we can look back to rebuilding, uh, to cross 
Christ's work on the cross as our center of worship as well. Expect that opposition will come sooner or later. Whether from the world or discouragements and disappointments that we experience, they will happen. Expect them. But know that God is with you. And we may sometimes have to wait to see his promises come true, but that's okay. Continue to remind yourself and each other of the truth in his word and wait for that final day where we can be proud and stand before him, having fought the good fight, having finished the race, and having kept the faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and all the truths that come with it. May you keep reminding us, encouraging us, that as times and oppositions happen, that you are still with us. So thank you, God, for overcoming the world and for being our God. So we pray all these things in your son's most mighty name. Amen. So take a few moments now to reflect. What's something that stood out to you during